Thank you, Betsy, and good morning again to all of you. And what a, um, what a market contrast today is from yesterday, huh? But hopefully you got out yesterday and were able to uh, enjoy that day. It is good to see so many of you here today and uh, so many that we have not seen. And it feels like it's been a year. Um, it, it actually has been. So uh, it is good to see you all. And uh, it's good to have those of you who are joining us from home as well. You know, you can, again, you can kind of feel in the air that things are beginning to kind of slowly change. It's not all, you know, sunny and 70. There are also winds and clouds and 40s, but, uh, but there is a sense of kind of moving forward. And uh, I talked about this a little bit last week before the sermon um, about some of the things that we as a session are proposing. So I just want to remind you uh, that we have an informational meeting on April the 15th, which used to be tax day. I don't think it is anymore, but uh, at 7 o'clock uh, in the sanctuary, or you can live stream it, where we want to talk about uh, the food pantry that we are proposing building just south of the cabin and uh, some of the renovations uh, to the chapel, as well as um, uh, selling one of the properties that we have in order to help further our mission. Uh, we also want to talk about a, 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 a logo that we have that kind of speaks to who we are and the direction that we're headed and a couple of other things that, uh, that we want to talk about as well. So uh, before some of you head off to spring break, uh, just remember this, put it in your calendar because we would love to have you um, uh, to be able to hear a little bit more about what it is that we are talking about doing now, um, today on this Palm Sunday, uh, we're doing something I don't think I've ever done before, which is not actually talk about the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. I uh, wrestled with whether to do that or whether to stick to kind of what we've been doing this year, which is to focus on one of the passages that we were reading uh, during the week uh, prior to that. And so we're going to do that. Next week, I will venture away from um, the beginning of Luke so that we can look at the Easter passage in Luke we'll be looking at next week. But today, instead of looking at Jesus entering into Jerusalem, we're going to be looking at Zechariah. Zechariah, who is the, the father of John the Baptist. And so before I kind of dive in here to Luke 1, um, 68 through 79, I'll just let you know that, that, that John the Baptist has just been born uh, to Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife and I just kind of picture uh, Zechariah kind of looking at this newborn child as he uh, begins to prophesy or to sing this song. And here is what Zechariah says. He says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us, that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we give you praise for this day. Though it may not be as sunny and glorious as yesterday, we know that you are with us in the sun and in the cloud, Lord. That you are with us in days when all is going well and days when things are not going well. So we pray that we would feel your presence even now. And I pray that all the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, if you read Luke 1 this week, then you will remember that there are really two songs uh, in Luke 1 that we oftentimes talk about. First, you have Mary's song, the more famous of the two, understandably so. That's called the Magnificat, typically. And then you have this one in Luke, uh, which is uh, or excuse me, this one by Zechariah, which is called Benedictus. And uh, it's called Benedictus. That's the Latin word for blessed be, which is the way uh, that this uh, song begins. And it is aptly named because this uh, song that Zechariah sings or this prayer that he prays or this prophecy that he prophesies, however you want to look at it, is blessing after blessing after blessing. It is, it is Zechariah being thankful and being grateful to God. That's where it begins. It begins with Zechariah creating space to give God praise. And so he begins by thanking the Lord for redeeming his people. It begins by thanking the Lord for the ways in which his servant David has brought them salvation and, and, and rescue from their enemies. It begins by thanking God for, uh, for his mercy and for uh, the way that he has kept his covenant that he made with Abraham long before. And so he, he begins by just creating the space to just praise God. He is benedictusing to make a verb uh, God, right? And what's interesting is that he moves from that uh, to, to, to this next step where he begins to give God praise for the present and the future. And uh, one of, the reason why I like that is because it, it echoes what we've talked about a decent amount here, which is if you're struggling with being able to see God in the present, if you're struggling with being thankful for the Lord uh, and being able to trust God for, for the future, one of the great ways to begin to kind of help you to do that is by remembering, right? This is why the Old Testament especially is always talking about remember the Lord. And so what Zechariah does here is he, he begins by remembering what the Lord has done and then he begins to shift. And, and again, if you can just imagine him looking at this new baby boy, John, and just seeing him begin to celebrate what he believes is going to happen through this child. How through this child, all of a sudden, uh, he's going to be able to further God's kingdom. That through this child, he's going to be preparing the way for Jesus, the Son of God. Through this child, that there will be light that is shown in the darkness. Through this child, people's uh, feet will be able to walk through uh, the way of peace. It's this great kind of remarkable statement of faith. You can just imagine it. It takes a lot of faith um, to look at a child who can do very little uh, and who can say even less and believe that somehow this little vulnerable child is going to grow into someone who is going to do remarkable things for the Lord. And so as I was reading this passage and what people were saying about this passage, it was clear that one of the things that we could do this morning would be to just stop everything else and for me to invite you to write your own Benedictus, right? To, to, to invite you 
to just create some time or to have this time to begin to write down the places where you have seen the Lord work. Right? We've lived through a remarkably difficult year full of fear and anxiety and struggle. You know it. I don't have to go back and describe it for you. You were there. And yes, in many ways, of course, we seem to have more hope, right? There is, you know, just like yesterday, we get glimpses of the sunshine, glimpses of, of health. And, 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 and to be sure, there is great hope and joy to be found in that. But what I've also discovered, and maybe you have as well, maybe you're someone who's wrestling with this, is that after a year of living in this fear and anxiety and, 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 and wondering about the unknown, the wires in our brains have been uh, changed so that what we oftentimes do is even if there might be good that we can see, we tend to keep going back to the familiar fear or anxiety. We keep uh, uh, watching things or, or reading things or just thinking things that don't actually give us any sense of hope, but instead just kind of keep us going back to those negative thoughts. And if we're called to be a people of light and hope, I think what some of us need, quite frankly, is just to get you know, a bit of a jump start, if you will, to, to do something to jolt us and perhaps that thing is to simply just begin to write down the places, even in the last year, where you have seen God's faithfulness and provision. If nothing else, you are here. And your heart is beating and you have breath in your lungs. So we could have done that. But the more that I looked at this passage today, the more I was struck by something that the older I get, the more I tend to think about. Which is not just, wow, isn't it great that Zechariah, even though he continued to be a person living under the oppression of the Roman Empire, uh, even though you know, uh, he didn't have tons of things going for him per se, who continued to, to be able to give God praise, right? We could just focus on that. But the question that kept coming to my mind was this, how? How was Zechariah able to be this person who was thankful? This person who was able to just do this benedictus and give God praise? This person who had this great faith about the future and about what the Lord was going to do? Over these last 15 years or so of pastoral ministry, I've done a lot of premarital counseling and uh, I enjoy it. Uh, there's only been once or twice that I haven't liked it and... Um, I don't even know what, I don't know, that actually is true. I was trying to think if that was true. It is. But mostly, 95% of the time, the couples have been great, right? And one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is talking about goals. What are the goals you have? I think it's important for you to, you know, to know that you're aiming for something, right? And so we'll have um, financial goals, right? This is where we want to be, or, you know, in five years, 10 years, all, all the way down the road. We have relational goals, right? This is, this is how we want to communicate with one another. And this is, this is how we want to be as a husband and a wife. And, and, and these are our family goals. And those things are all wonderful. <clears throat> but the longer I've done this, the older I've gotten, what I've realized is that basically all of those goals are absolutely useless if you don't ask the follow-up questions, which are these. How are we going to get to that place? And what is it going to take for us to do it? And are we actually going to be committed to it? And I, I will have to say, I don't, most young couples, their eyes just glaze over. They're just like, yeah, yeah, we know. But, but I don't think they really do. 
Because here's the thing. If you have this great financial goal of, let's just say, retirement, that's wonderful. But you have to then ask, what are you going to give up every month? What money are you going to put into that account? And that means that you have to not do something else you really want to do. Who wants to talk about that? Right? Or, 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 or relational goals, we just, you know what? We want it to be that in 15 or 20 years when we walk, we don't even look at what's ahead of us. We just stare at each other the whole time. <laughs> that goal will change, but that's fine. But the question is this, how do you do that? Because these same couples oftentimes are also already, they've gotten in a rut where what they do is they watch Netflix all night. Or they just, they, you know, they're, they're, they're just watching TV. They're together, but they're not actually talking. And so we say, okay, well, that's great if that's what you want as a goal. But here's the thing, you've got to shut the TV off. You have to keep having date nights. You've got to figure out how you're going to carve out the time. You've got you've to do those things, right? What's the point of coming up with these goals like that? Or I would suggest like Zechariah. I am being someone who gives blessings if you don't, if you aren't willing to figure out what it takes to actually get there, right? I just think that probably after 47 years of coming up with goals and New Year's resolutions and seeing them fail again and again, I just don't have much desire to just come up with some random goal just to make me feel good about things. I want to ask the question, how? So how did Zachariah become a person who was able to celebrate who the Lord was. How did Zechariah become someone who could see a newborn and the vulnerability of that and not know 100% for sure? We can see it looking back, but he didn't know that 100% and be like, yes, I have faith that this child is going to do these sorts of things. Did Zechariah, was he just born like that? Right? Was he born and as he was, like he was just like, ooh, praise God, good to see you guys. Was he, was, he, was he named, you know, most likely to be Benedictus when he was in high school? Did these things just come naturally for him? Well, let's take a look. If we go back about 60 verses, or about nine months from the Benedictus, we're introduced to Zechariah for the very first time. Zechariah and Elizabeth, we are told, were good, faithful people. They obeyed the commands. They prayed. Zechariah was a, was a priest. Now, this is uh, just of the priestly clan. He wasn't like he didn't get paid for doing that. Why would you pay someone to do that kind of thing? Um, he volunteered, but they were good, faithful, synagogue-going kinds of people, we're told. And on this particular time, uh, well, the other two things that we know about him is this, that they didn't have any children and that they were old. So Zechariah has his uh, cast, the lots are cast, and, and he's called to go into the sacred place. Right? He's going to go into this, this sacred place where, where it was, you know, where it was, imagine within their faith that this is where God was. This was, this was where God was. He's supposed to go into the sanctuary. And so he does. And when he goes into the sanctuary, he sees an angel, a messenger of God. And we're told that he is afraid. We're told that he is terrified. Now, let me say this. I understand more than likely for most of us, if we saw an angel, we would be unsettled. Is that safe to say? But there is something a little bit odd to me about this that I think we should at least acknowledge, which is, think about this again. 
Zechariah is going into the sacred place where only he could go. That's how sacred and holy it was, where it was expected that that's exactly where God was. That's where God was supposed to be. And Zechariah goes in there and he is afraid because he sees a messenger of God. Right? It's a bit like this. If you come over to my house and you come into my house and you see me or you see my wife or you see our kids and you're like, whoa! What are you doing here? Like, you would expect to see us, wouldn't you? So I just find it, again, I want to give, I understand it being a little bit afraid, I get that, but I find it interesting, and just a question for us to think about, I'm just going to leave it out there, to think that faithful Zechariah went into the place where God was expected to reside, and when he saw a messenger of God, he was shocked. I just wonder if when you come into the sanctuary you actually expect to see or experience God at all I just leave that so he does and he's afraid and so Gabriel the angel says this do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Are you hearing what this is saying? Can you imagine this? Just again, picture you're Zachariah. You're just going into the sanctuary. This is already kind of an exciting time for you because not everybody gets chosen to do this. You go in, there is an angel who's a angelic enough to scare the living crud out of you and you see it and you're like wow and then he says oh yes not only am I an angel Gabriel says but I'm here to tell you that your prayers have been heard you have been desperate for years to have a baby you're gonna have a child but get this your child is going to be amazing right now everybody thinks that their child's gonna be amazing but this one really is right and, and he says he is in fact he's gonna be like Elijah one of the most revered people in all of the history of Israel I mean this guy is going to be a world changer and you've got Gabriel and he's telling Zechariah all of these things and what does Zechariah say? Does Zechariah just begin to weep for joy? Does he just begin to laugh? Does he start jumping up and down? Does he go back and say, oh, Lizzie, guess what? We're having a kid. Can you believe it? Does he do any of those things? No. He strokes his beard because all good men of God have a beard. <laughs> and he says... How is this going to be so? You realize, Gabe, can I call you Gabe? You realize 
that I am old, and um, between you and me, I love how the NRSV puts it, my wife is getting on in years. <laughs> I mean, there he is. This is supposed to be Benedictus Zechariah, but it's not. There he is. And Gabriel is right there telling him this incredible thing. And all that Zechariah can see are the reasons why this can't be the case. Are the reasons why God's not going to work through him. Are the reasons why none of this can be true. All he can see is his own reality. What happened? Right? Where, where is this Benedictus Zechariah that we're going to see in nine months? This looks a lot more like Jerry Zechariah than it does Zechariah Benedictus. This looks a whole lot more like many of us who pray but don't really expect God to hear. Who come into a sanctuary but don't really expect God to appear. How does Zechariah go from this Zechariah, normal Zechariah, to Zechariah Benedictus? Gabriel, I think, tells us. Now, I wish that we could kind of flicker the lights here as I read this, because this is really the way it was, and I wish, as I always have, that my voice was a lot deeper. It's not. So you're just going to have to picture. Just picture everything just kind of flickering. Picture this booming voice when Gabriel says this. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be, I love this because he's like, I don't care what you say, John or Zechariah, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute unable to speak until the day these things occur. So what happens to Zechariah that gets him from normal everyday Zach to all of a sudden being Zechariah Benedictus? Well, there's probably a couple of things. One of them, to be sure, being able to hold a baby. I'm not trying to downplay that, but I also want you to know this that we are not doing this justice if we don't also admit that a part of the reason why he was able to go from somebody who doubted and all he saw were the obstacles to someone who was giving God praise was because he spent nine months in silence. Nine months where he could say Nothing. Nine months to simply think and reflect. Nine months to simply be. Now, I have to tell you, for the first 46 years of my life, or at least when I started hearing this, probably when I was five or six, until last year, I only saw this mutation of Zechariah as being 
cruel, harsh punishment. That the reason why, quite frankly, Zechariah was able to give God praise was because he was scared to death that, that Gabriel was going to mute him again. That he's like, you hear me, Gabe? I'm praising God! And the reason I thought that was because I only could see that as being harsh, cruel punishment because I have always loved talking. Right, I've told you this before. When I was in high school, I said, Mom, I don't know, Mom. I don't know what I want to do. All I know is I want to get paid somehow to speak publicly. I just don't know what I want to talk about. Thank you. (laughs) And so Zachariah goes from here to here. And perhaps it wasn't a harsh and cruel punishment. Perhaps it was a remarkable gift. Have you ever thought about the fact that in many ways this story is actually about two different births, two different almost gestation periods of nine months? On the one, of course, you have the physical birth of John the Baptist. But on the other hand, you have a spiritual rebirth of Zechariah. That it took nine months. But in those nine months of silence, in those nine months of having to reflect on God without being able to just say what you wanted to say, in those nine months, Zechariah is reborn from being everyday, ordinary Zech to being Zechariah Benedictus over here. Richard Foster, in his book Celebration of Disciplines, in his book, in a chapter where he talks about silence and solitude, he brings up this proverb that says, all those who open their mouths close their eyes. All those who open their mouths close their eyes. That a part of the reason why we need times of silence and solitude is so that we can see and hear God. One of the fascinating things about this story, maybe you remember this, is that when Zechariah goes home to Elizabeth, She, in the first five months of her pregnancy, and this was not like a tradition of what the Jewish people in that day would do, she went into five months of solitude. That Elizabeth and Zechariah are both spending time in solitude and silence, and because of that, they are able to experience God in ways they had never experienced him before. I've given this message, but I know it's not popular. But one of the greatest death knells to our spirituality, to our life in Christ, is constant noise and a lack of silence. Almost 80 years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote his book, Screwtape, The Screwtape Letters. Many of you are familiar with it. It's this fictional tale of a, of a senior demon uh, trying to mentor his nephew who is a junior tempter. And he's trying to teach him how to, how to distract and dissuade people from following Jesus. 
And what he says in this one particular letter is that he hates music and he hates silence. Because music and silence, he says, is what draws people to God. And then he says this, that he has a great hope that at some point they will be able to make the whole universe a noise. And this was written well before everybody had AirPods or headphones on well before you couldn't go out on a walk or a run without having something blaring through your ears. How did people do it for, I don't know, thousands of years? And then more recently, Andrew Sullivan wrote this. Modernity slowly weakened spirituality by design and accident in favor of commerce It downplayed silence and mere being in favor of noise and constant action. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be, and that parenthesis is just mine, reborn. Did you hear that word? If the churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. My point is this. I don't think that Gabriel silencing Zechariah was just some hard or cruel punishment. I think it was necessary. For him to then be able to get to a place where he can praise God, where he can watch his wife's womb begin to grow, where he can have the faith to believe that this child was going to make a radical difference in the world for God. It didn't just happen. He didn't luck upon it. For many of us, This last year has been one of almost, much like Zechariah, of involuntary silence. We didn't choose to have our world slow down or stop. It's just what happened. For many of us, during this last year, we have been much less busy going from this place or that. Many of us got outside more. We could read about the number of people who were outside. You couldn't find a bicycle if you wanted one. It was impossible. Many of us, the way that we live changed in that last year. And now things are beginning to crank back up again. And we are all of us going to have a choice as to whether we just say yes to everything, yes to every activity, yes to every noise that begins to come our way, or if we are going to say there are some things that we refuse to give into. Because that involuntary silence and solitude will not be there any longer. It's part of the reason why, and this was in this application that I wrote out a year and a half ago, 
that I want you to join me in this sabbatical that's coming up this summer. Now, hear me, what that means. One, it doesn't mean you'll actually be with me. There's just not enough space. And two, I know that when I say my sabbatical, there are some of you, myself included, who says, okay, can you just be quiet and just go already? I get it, I do. But you see, what I am hopeful for, and what we will talk about even more in the weeks ahead, is that, is that all of us in this summer will move from what I've called in this kind of grant, because I got it from this book, I, you guys have heard this, from moving from unconscious busyness to conscious habitation. And that all of us will practice this summer, and we'll give you some tips on what to do if you can't think of anything, to practice what it means to live quieter lives. As I think it's in 1 Thessalonians says, we should all, we should all strive to live quiet lives. And part of the grant, I, we're going to buy uh, um, some books to put in the library. You could buy this on your own. I brought this book up the other day. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry because it has some really great tips on what we might do just to slow down, to be quiet. Because it will not just happen. You do not stumble from ordinary Zach to Zechariah Benedictus. But this week, I want to invite you into something different. I want to invite you to kickstart this by going into what I have kind of called this womb of silence. Maybe that means in your car. Maybe it means it starts today. I, mine started this morning on my way here because I knew what I was going to say. Maybe this holy week, when you get in your car, you play no music, no podcasts, no videos for the kids. I realize that for some of you that means it won't be a quiet van, and you just are simply quiet. Now, some of you, I just spoke to someone who I know is driving down to South Alabama at the end of this week, modify this. But just simply be quiet. Maybe it's when you go out on that run or you're going out on that walk and you usually always listen to something. Maybe this week you don't. Maybe it's when you're in your house and usually you're always like, Alexa, play this or play that. Maybe you just don't. And maybe you just are silent. And perhaps you can reflect as you think about it this week on, on the life of Jesus. What he would have been wrestling with. The questions he would have had. The pain he was enduring. Maybe it's a time for you to do your own Benedictus and begin to spend time in that silent remembering how God has been faithful. Or maybe you do what I've begun to do of late, which may seem a little bit weird, but it's just to, to simply sit there and just visualize God as your father, as your parent, just embracing Silence is perhaps one of the most countercultural things that we as a church can do. And moving from here 
to a person of thanksgiving and gratefulness and praise will not happen overnight and it won't happen in a week. But if that is our goal, and if we want to deepen our relationship with Jesus, I'm afraid it seems to me there is no other way It requires what is perhaps the most difficult thing for most of us to do. And that is to do nothing. Let us pray. God, noise is a great comfort to us. It is like a blanket that we wrap ourselves in. It protects us oftentimes from our own thoughts, our own fears, and our own anxiety. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage. Courage to follow the way of Zechariah to move from constant busyness and constant noise to a people who are comfortable with the quiet. That we might then experience you in new ways. That as our mouths are shut, that our eyes and our ears will be open. Teach us to find these wombs of silence that we might be born anew. Amen.